Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Hey there, Spacers. Welcome back to another episode of IROC Space Radio's The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and we are all part of the iHeartRadio network. My guest tonight is Colonel Pete Gerritsen. Pete is co-author with a wonderful lady, Dr. Namrata Goswami, of a book called Scramble for the Skies. He's an old friend um, and definitely a hero of the space revolution. Uh, he's been around uh, primarily in military circles, working on developing ways of opening, supporting, dealing with, interacting with, or strategically handling the challenges that we will be facing as we move out into what Dr. O'Neill called the high frontier. Peter's a senior fellow in defense studies for the American Foreign Policy Council. He has held an amazing amount of different or a number of jobs um, in the Air Force and the Pentagon. Um, and, uh, you know, he's worked on a lot of their vision types of activities. Uh, but he was division chief of irregular strategy plans and policy at the Air Force. He was chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, strategic Studies Group. He spent four years as Chief of Future Technology for U U.S. Air Force Headquarters, on and on and on. So without spending too much more time introducing Pete, I'm going to bring him right in and we are going to start this conversation. Pete, welcome to the frontier. Welcome to the revolution. Rick, thanks so much. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, I was just trying to get that stuff out of the way so we like dive in and, and have some fun, right? Because I got to do that. Um, sometimes I forget when I have a guest on, like they, the audience doesn't know them, right? I know you. I know what a leader you've been. Um, and I know the work you've been doing on the inside for a long, long time. Um, but I, I, I guess the best place to start this conversation is tell us about your book. Tell us about Scramble for the Skies. All right. So Scramble for the Skies uh, was really written for a very specific purpose. And it was because, you know, when I got, or I should say, when I came back to space, because of course, you know, I was, uh, I was born as we were taking the, uh, the Earthrise photo. And of course, grew up, you know, being extremely excited in my weekly world readers about, you know, there being moon bases with kids on them by the time I was a grown up. And uh, you know, thinking about how the shuttle was going to, you know, open up this vast frontier. And uh, it seemed like America, you know, knew where it's going. And so I could just sit back and let it ride. And uh, so I was pretty shocked um, when uh, uh, circa 2004, I came to Air Force headquarters and, uh, and realized how badly off track we were and got angry enough about it that I felt I needed to get back in. Well, starting in 2004, and we met very close to that period of time, I, I still remember, you know, being, you know, a young officer, uh, you know, listening to two firebrands from the Space Frontier Foundation talk about this completely different, you know, free enterprise vision of space and being like, you know, wow, I've never heard anything like that before. And that is so completely in line with how I think things should go. Um. And then I started to have a series of conversations over time, you know, that convinced me of this amazing opportunity that existed out in space. And, you know, over time, you don't realize how far you've sort of departed from the farm, you know, how, how many different data sets create a completely different paradigm. And when you talk to, you know, normal people who have not had that exposure, you know, you can, you can sound pretty out there and crazy. And in particular, what I noticed was there was this, you know, multi-decade long conversation that the space community had had, in particular about space resources and their their geostrategic importance and their importance to everything, survival of humanity, to mitigating climate change, to, uh, you know, global poverty and energy security, and that none of these conversations had translated into the real policymaking community or even the international relations scholarship community. You know, they, they, they weren't having these conversations at all. And so, 
you know, it was clear to me that somebody needed to write an adequate primer and defense for that community about what was being said about space resources and their importance and to put it in that terminology to sort of make it, as I call it, a crossover hit. And so, you know, this book, you know, was written as an academic uh, piece to explore um, the importance of space resources and what nations were already doing. And, you know, along in formulating it, you know, uh, Namrata and I had run into a lot of people that basically didn't, they weren't exposed to the, what were very early signals at the time and didn't think this was the case. And so we felt we had to, we had to be extremely careful about footnoting and providing a, a very strong argument such that it, you know, it, there were a lot of, you know, a lot behind it. And, you know, the feedback we've got is that that's been, you know, that we did that fairly successful, that that the that folks that have read the book seem to think it's a convincing argument and that they'll actually flip open the references to say, no, no, look, you know, this is true. Look here, here's the reference. So I'm, I'm glad that it has had uh, the intended effect so far. No, that's, that's great. And yeah, great stuff that you guys do. And, and it's amazing that, um, you know, this far into the space age, as it was, as, as it were, um, we're still at the very beginning of educating people as to what the possibilities are, what the risks are. Um, as you know, I focus largely on the possibilities. Um, and, uh, but thanks to you and a few other folks, I, you know, I have been, uh, dragged in or led in cause I wanted to help in terms of, um, our defense, uh, situation in space for the U S and by the way, we have a lot of international, um, listeners and, um, you know, just to clarify, uh, before we dive into that area, you know, a lot of what we're speaking about here is how do we keep it free and safe beyond the earth? How do we make sure that the rights of passage, the rights of uh, property, the rights of engagement, the rights of doing whatever you want to do out there are kept clear and uh, that it's a free domain for all of humanity. Um, and that being said, you know, um, you and I have worked a lot regarding Space Force. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. There are still people who don't even know there is one. They, they do think it's a comedy show on Netflix. Um, and uh, others still think it's science fiction. Um, you know, give me, give me your take on that. Wait, as far as why we needed to stand up a Space Force, because you're one of the people that worked in the background and, you, you know, you need your... Um, you know, you need your props on this because you helped create Space Force. You're one of the players in the background that I help, that I actually give credit to for helping make this happen. Why did you need, why did you believe it needed to happen? Well, my reasons are going to be a little more long-term than most. I mean, I, I agree with everything that, you know, you'll hear people commonly say that, you know, the threat has evolved, you know, that we need dedicated organizations to deal with the, the existing threat. But for me, you know, those were not the compelling reasons for a separate space force. You know, my thought was that if all you were going to do was to just continue to be a information support arm for the joint force, um, there were other ways you could do that, including leave it in Air Force Space Command. Um, there are reasons why it's preferable because space is, you know, a separate legal and physical domain. But in my view, you know, it really was about giving yourself the lead time uh, and organizing yourself for a bright future. And um, I'm fully bought in to, you know, the idea of becoming a, you know, uh, a multi-trillion person, you know, civilization and free flying colonies and a multi-planetary civilization and moving humanity, intelligent life, as well as huge amount of our biosphere and other species with us to, as you put it in so poetically, you know, to make worlds, you know, to bring life to worlds now dead. Mm -hmm. um, and I really do think, you know, that, that forms sort of the spiritual heart of like, what is the, what is the, the special mission of humanity? Well, you know, we're the only intelligent species that has a chance of getting earth life off earth in any meaningful way. And so, you know, we don't, we don't have conclusive evidence that life exists anywhere else other than Earth. And so, you know, likely does, but 
since we don't know, we have to think, what if we're the only candle in the dark? And and since we know that, you know, the earth itself is eventually going to be boiled off by an expanding sun, if there's going to be a future for life at all, for intelligent life, we have to move out. And it and just curiously enough, you know, the, the resources of space are so vast that there could be many more of us in a much diverse uh, ecosystem and much diverse sphere of intelligence. So, you know, we could have a much broader, richer uh, uh, life for life out there. And it would seem like, a, you know, a betrayal of what we could be uh, to keep ourselves just, just boxed up here. And as you think about this future going out, you have to think about, well, how, what are different ways it could turn out? And, you know, you'd like it to turn out in a way where people's hard work is rewarded and not just taken from them by some predation. Uh, you'd like it to be a world in which, you know, people uh, enjoy some degree of human rights and aren't just slaves, you know, to the state or to an autocracy or, you know, are able to be shut down because of some accidental ethnicity or difference in language. And so I think that, you know, for for the kind of society that I enjoy living in, one where I know that there's certain, you know, boundaries and freedoms that I can enjoy, uh, you know, that, that has never come for free. Uh, on Earth, which is one celestial body floating out there in space, one celestial body where property is allowed, by the way, <laughs> Um, so, you know, on this celestial body, you know, we've, you know, we've had to, to spend, you know, treasure and blood to make sure that that sort of, you know, freedom and that sort of representative government, uh, survives. And one of the ways that that has been backstopped is by having armed forces that within that realm of, of that democratic or, you know, representative, you know, world protects, you know, what exists protects individuals and of course protects their property. Mm-hmm. So at, so I answer directly yeah, yeah. in order to have that future, right. you needed to think about what was going to be the security arm that was going to enable that. And because we're right at that cusp, you know, we saw that we were at that cusp, you know, when we were starting to have the first rung of, you know, now not completely successful, but it was the first attempt at asteroid mining. We were starting to see us move into reusable rockets. We were starting to see the development for the first time of a truly commercial space sector that wanted to service the entire world and bring down costs. That was the right time to start, not to wait until it was too late to develop those capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it is, yeah, it's that moment. It's that moment, you know, where, uh, by the way, I call them rocket ships now. I'm trying to make a distinction for people that, um, rockets and launchers, you know, um, those are one way use and you don't throw ships away. So I'm throwing the, throwing the ship word on there now, spaceships and rocket ships, just to, cause you know, I'm a language guy. Uh, but look, speaking of language, let's, um, well, I'll tell you what, let's come back after the break. Cause I want to get more, I took you off onto space force, great, very important topic. We we're going to go all over the place. Um, and that's kind of the way the show is, right? We just go wherever we're going to go. Uh, we'll come back after the break. I want to hear a little bit more of what's in the book, you know, and, and what you're forecasting beyond Space Force and the economics um, and, and what you're seeing come, you know, come into the future. Um, and then we'll just meander off on a, some sort of orbit again, you know, that's some sort of trajectory. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thank you. All right, Spacers, uh, you are listening to iRock Space Radio. We're a part of the iHeartRadio network. My name is Rick Tomlinson. By the way, my handle is at RocketRick on Twitter. Um, and uh, feel free to tune in, although you may have to excuse some of my tirades here and there. Um, and we're going to be right back with our amazing guest, Colonel Pete Gerritsen. Hey, welcome back, Spacers. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You're listening to The Space Revolution. Uh, our guest tonight is, or today, depending on when you're hearing this, is Colonel Pete Gerritsen. He's the author of, co-author with Namrata Ganswami of the great book, Scramble for the Skies. Um, so Pete, let's, let's get into this. Um, tell me more. Right? We, we kind of went off on Space Force and all of that, which is, you know, uh, I guess the listeners don't know this. You, Pete and I are part of a thing called the dog 
which is the Doctrine Organization Group. And uh, we're a group of people that is basically trying to help Space Force um, do it right moving into the future and, and get it right. And um, I can clearly say that Pete and I come down on the Star Trek version of the military in space. <laughs> so let's go into the the human expansion into space and, and what you're predicting in Scramble for this guy. What is it you're, you're saying is going to happen? You know, what is your big forecast out of the book? So, you know, the big forecast out of the book is that nations are already starting to think about space in terms of resources and economics and strategic competition, and that that will accelerate. Um, the two main contenders that we think are, are, you know, going to be leading it are going to be the United States and China. Um, and over time, as we get, you know, closer to 2050, um, India will, will be in the top three economies. And so, you know, as a spacefaring nation, they'll be there. Uh, we think, you know, there's every indication that they'll be a little later, later to the party than others. Um, but, uh, you know, you arrive at this world, you know, you know, we, we sort of, we have a number of scenarios in the end where we look to say, like, how might the world go, you know, three three very different ways with, you know, one of each of the powers sort of, um, you know, leading and how that, how that might be different. And a lot of it actually comes down to the agency of the, of the middle powers, um, you know, the second tier powers and how they react um, and try to corral and keep everybody on the, on the same you know, page or not. Um, but we don't give just one prediction. You know, we, uh, you know, we, we go through a bunch of different scenarios, things that could happen, on the moon, all kinds of, you know, dirty tricks and nasty things, you know, that one, you know, party could do to another. Uh, you know, we examine the possibility of like competing mining claims because there really isn't a resolution mechanism. You know, what happens if that leads to, you know, each side sort of reinforcing their their commercial national champions? And, you know, what happens if, yeah, you know, you get something that might look like a, you know, a a blockade or embargo and the need to sort of, you know, uh, you know, rescue, uh, you know, to break that blockade. But, uh, you know, but in essence, you know, what we think is that over, over time, you know, it'll be on sort of the same kind of exponential curve that, you know, you'd see hopefully in your bank account uh, with interest where things will start small and there'll be incremental steps. And over time, they'll just keep picking up and picking up and, you know, one day we'll wake up and be surprised at how many human beings are in space and uh, how much of our industry has moved off world. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're predicting that we are going to see this expansion. Um, what do you see as the greatest inhibitor, the, the, the thing that might block us the most or, or slow us down? Well, when you say us, is the us humanity or is the us, those of us in the United States? <laughs> um, well, let's hit both. Uh, yeah. Uh, us in the United States, first of all, and they may be the same. I really think in the United States, it is this fashionability to be self-flagellating and self-hating and the lack of confidence that, that we actually have the solution that, uh, that works and would benefit humanity. I think, you know, we have seen a, a cultural turn that, uh, you know, is decidedly uh, sapping uh, of American will to power. And I think that, you know, uh, going into space is an expression, you know, of, of vibrancy and confidence. And to the extent that we, you know, descend into, you know, choosing to look at each other in terms of our, you know, accidentals and differences instead of, you know, as a common project uh, and a common project that aims, you know, at, at individual flourishing and, you know, flourishing of that common project, um, that's, that's going to slow us down. Um, and I think that's also been sort of falsely linked or unnecessarily linked with, uh, with, uh, you know, what I would call, you know, uh, some, you know, some people would call it an environmental movement, but I think most space, most space people would strongly consider themselves environmentalists. 
um, in fact, as one of their major motivations. Um, but you know, you you have an anti-growth movement that basically thinks that you know growth itself, you know, that basically life itself is bad um, because that's what life does is to grow and flourish and find new places to be. Uh, you know, but there is this anti-growth movement that certainly you know uh, believes that you know anything that would allow human capacities to to extend that would allow you know individuals in our society to get wealthy particularly if any particular individuals in that might get slightly wealthier than others you know that that is conceived of as you know something to be avoided and therefore because space offers such potential to uplift the human capacity and, and the wealth um, and offers real solutions we should say to climate change as opposed to you know ones that are that are just politically imposed um, you know, because space offers technological solutions, you know, those folks see it as a, a sort of a moral hazard and would argue against it. And I mean, some of those forces exist globally. What I would say, though, is that it is always a possibility that some, you know, terrible event could happen where, you know, there's a war on Earth or there's, you know, uh, you know, a major you know, debris-causing war in space that could slow us down for a significant period of time. But overall, I actually think it's the opposite of, you know, I hear a lot of people in the space community, you know, wanting to sort of hold hands and do it cooperatively. And and I think we've got very solid evidence that that, that has made us go slower. Um, you know, we, I think humanity as a whole is likely to move out in space much faster if there's some degree of strategic competition and there is a reason and an urgency to do it. Uh, and therefore, I think humanity as a whole is is going to win from the current U.S.-China competition. Interesting. Um, there's so many different places we could play there. Um, but the, uh, you know, one, I guess one of my questions would be about your assertion at the end is that it's um, U.S. versus China in the sense of you know, how that manifests, right? Because the original space race was U.S. versus Russia, and it manifested as two government space programs taking each other on. Uh, thinly veiled military um, aer aerospace industrial complex programs going after each other. So I'm going to give you a chance to go sideways a little bit on your answer because I don't think that's what you meant because I know you. Um, and you're not suggesting that we can get into space faster if the U.S. government jumps in and takes on the Chinese government to open space. Am I correct, sir? No. Well, <laughs> you, yes and no. I mean, I know what you mean, and I'll get there. But, I mean, I don't think that the right answer uh, or the optimal answer either for the United States or for humanity is a is a recreation of – a, a government program like Apollo. But let's not kid ourselves that wise government spending on a commercial space ecosystem can accelerate it fast, right? So we as a nation, great example, we as a nation, unlike many other nations, chose not to have a single national airline. We chose to have a diversity of airlines that were competing. But what we did do was to initially have airmail contracts uh, that secured routes that allowed the basic airlines to become profitable enough to take on passengers. And from there, they were self-sustaining. And so, you know, without, without government creating a market, securing a market, um, making transactions safe in a market, it's it's hard to have a market exist. So, you know, I, I see no way around the utility and the necessity of government and government spending or subsidization. But in the mix of public versus private and, and leadership, I don't think government uh, needs to be architecting things. It shouldn't be owning the rockets. You know, it, it should, you know, like now, if, if the vision is to, well, let me back this up and say, in a world where you consider governments as the primary actors, you get the kind of disappointing, anemic 
outcomes that you know you had you had a, a a White House that put out SPD one, which was phenomenal guidance. It said NASA is going to lead a commercial and international you know return to the moon moon for an established permanent human presence. Uh, and then a later guidance on the South Pole where the resources are to focus on resource utilization. You know, I think all of us, when we heard that, were like, yeah, right on. That, that's, a, that's a good rule. But then you see how it was interpreted. And now it's going to be like three people in a tiny tin can habitat on the moon with a rover and, and you know, a tiny little ISRU plant, right? That's the kind of anemic underperformance you get when the government and you're going to pay, you know, four point one billion dollars to launch, you know, for your logistics system that's totally expendable, I'm, you know, absolutely sure that that was not what the White House had in mind, right? I think they had in mind, you know, NASA playing an opening role, you know, and then allowing a, a you know, your moon base should have some NASA people in it, but it should have a lot more commercial sector people in it. And it should have some science activity, but it needs to have like 10 times that much, 100 times, 1,000 times that much industrial base activity. Um, and really, you know, there's just such a potential space, you know, that we need to be opening up through mm -hmm. private industry. Uh, and, and, it, and as you, I think, have put it, you know, it's, it's not about them. It's not about, you know, the, you know, the the government employee we were mentioned that have been selected from all, you know, if space is going to really, you know, be there, it needs to be open for, for everybody, for the max amount of activity, for the maximum number of people. Um, and it needs to, you know, obey that frontier enabling test of is this government investment going to lead in an expansion in the number of activities and, and citizens that can take part, you know, in the space domain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, it's, it is interesting because we, we defaulted right back, you know, here in the U S to the Apollo model. Um, and, uh, it's like, that's the true North because, well, you know, it's being driven by that complex aerospace industrial complex and that's what they know. That's what they're comfortable with. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. I saw an article recently uh, about, the Artemis program, you know, this is not your grandmother's space program. I'm like, well, basically it is right. Um, you know, some, you know, it's a little more diverse, which is of course we want that, but it's really, uh, you know, um, it's a TV special type thing. It's not really about opening the frontier for human settlement or expansion of life. It's, it's some, uh, sort of a token activity that at the end of the day, um, we'll end up with flags and footprints, but to make your point about the competition that's out there, they're not thinking that way. They're going for it. Right. And, um, one of the telltales, and we can uh, talk about this when we come back is that, you know, while we've got the, as you know, I call it the Senate launch scam, the, uh, space launch system, uh, which is our big government rocket. Um, we are in the realm or in the time of Starship, uh, which by the time people hear this or see this may or may not have flown, but I guarantee if it hasn't flown, it'll be flying again and again and again until they get it right. But what's really interesting, and um, I, I will have a talk with your, your partner, Namrat, about this when she comes on regarding China, but from what I'm understanding, China is moving towards the Starship model, which is reusable space ships while our government is investing billions tens of billions of dollars developing a reusable 1960s era um rocket so let's come back expendable. and talk about that pardon expendable rocket expendable rocket um or as one of your military buddies that we both know says ordnance um instead of transportation <laughs> so we'll come back and uh, hang on. We're going to take a break and we'll come right back and hit that. All right, Spaces, you are listening to IROC Space Radio. It's the space revolution. My name is Rick Hamlets and our guest is Colonel Pete Gerritsen. And we are part of the iHeart Radio Network. We'll be right back. 
All right, spacers, we are mixing it up here on the Space Revolution with Colonel Pete Gerritsen. And uh, Pete is an expert on all things having to do with uh, military, uh, economic strategies, etc. And his amazing book is Scramble for the Skies that he had uh, wrote with his partner, Namrata Goswami. We were just diving into... Um, the thing that makes me popular with the aerospace industrial complex, which is the, uh, the failure uh, in terms of our government to develop uh, directly or be supportive of enough uh, their own citizens who um, were inspired by the original Apollo program and had gone out and started rocket ship companies, um, dozens and dozens of them. Meanwhile, NASA is building a uh, old school rocket, throw it away, that's going to keep things as expensive as possible. Meanwhile, and this was right before the break, I brought up the fact that China is actually moving towards the model that people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Rocket Lab and others are going towards, which is a reusable rocket ship that brings the cost down and opens the frontier. Pete, you were about to dive in on that when we went to the break. Your thoughts, sir? You know, so many thoughts on this, Rick. Of course, you know, we were, we were there when those decisions were being made the first and second time around. And I remember how disappointing it was to me that, you know, we chose to go with an expendable system. And of course, you know, we know why, you know, it, it was habitual. It was There were jobs that were already employed. There were people who thought they knew how to do it. You know, they could convince themselves that they could do it quickly and cheaply, although it didn't turn out that way. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, we were seeing, you know, other folks in the private sector uh, that thought, you know, we were ready. And in fact, many felt we'd been ready to do reusable launch vehicles for a very long time. Um, but I think it hints at, you know, just the different paradigm that existed within aerospace and within NASA and what existed, you know, externally. And, you know, you had on the one hand, this sortie exploration mentality, um, you know, juxtaposed against this development and settlement, uh, you know, much bigger vision that required, you know, I mean, if, if all you're going to do is plant a new footprint, you know, every few decades, you know, you just, you don't need reusability. Um, you know, but if you want to actually open the frontier and have repeated access, you've got to have a transportation system that's reusable and that enables you to, you know, have, have, you know, have your sunk costs and your fixed costs amortized over time so that your per sortie cost goes down. And, and as obvious as that was, you know, to us, you know, people didn't want to bite the upfront bullet. Of, of developing that or, or thought it was too hard until, you know, Elon came around and showed, hey, first stage reusability, you know, can be done. Um, and to their credit, you know, the Chinese, you know, saw which way the winds were coming. And because they do have that economic development and settlement mentality, you know, they're designing, and as, as NASA puts in their Moon and Mars objectives, you know, they architect, you know, from the right and execute from the left. Well, that's what the Chinese are doing, you know, just, you know, not, you know, to the, to the big vision, you know, of economic development and settlement. And, you know, of course, you know, the Chinese had an ability to, to learn from, you know, us and our community and what our thought leaders were saying and what was being ignored. And by the way, that, that, I, you know, Rick, you, you might particularly enjoy, um, chapter three of the book, because chapter three is basically a history of the space movement that we're thinking about mm. space development and settlement. And you'll see how thought leaders like yourself are chronicled in there in terms of, you know, thinking about that way back, like, you know, crazy things like, you know, the Northwest Ordinance for Space and the Inertial, you know, Commercial you know, Space Act and, you know, these grand visions that existed with O'Neill and, and you know, Daniel Graham and, and others that just sort of were, fell on deaf ears, were too big for our ambitions at the time, but are not too big for our competitors right now. And, you know, that's what's amazing to me is that the the visions that that we had in our commercial you know, basically the space frontier vision, right, is what has been adopted as state policy by the Chinese. And you can see it in, you know, everything mm -hmm. they're doing, right? You know, their their plan for 2040 is fully reusable, heavy launch vehicles, 
nuclear shuttles that can range and do asteroid mining, you know, uh, human tended bases, you know, supported on the moon that are industrializing it to build solar power satellites at scale, um, to build a $10 trillion earth economic zone, right? None of that, none of that, you know, is part of the current, you know, articulated uh, White House or, or NASA goals, right? We are, we are not talking openly that this is our goal. Although, to their credit, right, the, uh, this administration has not reversed the previous administration's basic goals and have put out a cislunar strategy, which we've never had, an in-space uh, servicing assembly and manufacturing strategy, which we've never had, and now a LEO development strategy, which for the first time ever in a White House document has articulated a goal of space settlement and used the word settlement. So, you know, that is, even though it's buried in there, you know, it's definitely not one of the top, you know, things. The fact that that even is in there and stayed in there really shows that the tide is turning um, and, I, and I think over time, you know, the United States is getting a lot of help focusing, and so is NASA, right? China is going to give us a lot of help focusing. So although we are handicapped by our prior success, you know, we, we have this Cold War experience when, you know, the race to the moon was really for a global audience. It was for, you know, prestige and winning the newly independent former colonial states, um, to say, come, come to our side. We've got the more vibrant, you know, sort of, uh, of government. You know, this time it's really about building hard economic power. And so it's hard. And I think it's, it's hard for NASA in two ways, maybe in three ways, right? First of all, mm-hmm. I think it has always been a bitter pill to, sw- to swallow that their success would proliferate and make them less special, right? It's a bitter pill to see that SpaceX and others can now do the things that were once heroic. I think it, it's a hard pill to swallow, uh, or, or I would say it's a difficult adjustment for NASA to change roles where they were the primary actor and now they're being asked to, to play, you know, a door opening role and, you know, where what they're catalyzing and, and the, and the, you know, that the fundamental game has shifted. So, you know, first generation NASA was absolutely about great power competition, right? It was the peacetime arm of great power competition in space. But in that race, it was really all about prestige. It wasn't about building an industrial civilization. It wasn't about building sustained economic power. It wasn't about catalyzing a market and commercial growth. So these are all new skills that that they have to learn. And it's a different competition than what they're used to. They they want to see it in a flags and footprints will get rewarded for prestige. Um, but then there's a third problem, which is, you know, from Apollo Soyuz on, right, we, you know, the agency got to shift from being the vanguard of uh, strategic great power competition in space to being the nicest of the nicest guys, right? These are the ones that are helping international cooperation everywhere, that are shaking hands with our former, you know, enemies that are, you know, going hand in hand with all humanity out to do pure science, right? And, and who cannot love? So having to take a step back to what the nation actually needs, which is a little bit of strategic competition on the final frontier and not necessarily being, you know, the, the goody two-shoes who everybody likes, you know, because they're, you know, purely into science and all about cooperation. I think that's a hard cultural adjustment as well. Um, but, you know, as, as slow as it's been, Rick, you know, NASA has consistently walked toward your position, right? It is, it, it may be very stumbling, right? But like the moon to Mars objectives, for the first time, call out a cislunar economy, a robust and expanding cislunar economy actually has lunar objectives. They actually are talking about commercialization. And from the point of time that you and the Space Frontier Foundation started banging on the door about commercial spaceflight, we've seen the commercial orbital uh, transportation cots, then we saw commercial crew, now we're seeing commercial uh, lunar payload service, and now we're seeing LEO destinations, right? Um, and they're starting to talk that talk uh, and hopefully start to invest in it, you know, over time. Now, that's obviously not where that $4 billion per launch is going. 
but they are also funding uh, HLS, you know, which is Starship. And and while while it is hard to imagine that SLS, you know, will, will really be that freight train, you know, to the moon, Starship just might. And if it does, and boy, am I crossing my fingers because if Starship works as advertised, it is such an unbelievable step change. Um, yeah, and we, we can talk about that if you want to. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't need to really say anything because you're saying all my stuff for me, so that's good. Uh, but uh, no, seriously, I I agree with you, and you know, it is interesting. I some of my friends in the field have said to me, Rick, you know, you got to get off it with this always attacking the SLS, and I uh, said so because it's um, they say because it's bought us a lot of congressional support. Artemis program has got us a lot of senators and Congress people, you know, getting money in their districts. Um, and just don't worry about it because at some point, uh, Starship, Blue Origin, these others will take over and move on. And I, and I was cool with that until, of course, NASA, probably under the guidance of one of the big aerospace companies, started talking about a contract to keep it going. Right. Um, and it sort of kind of belies that. Now, if, Jeff and Elon and the other private uh, transportation providers are able to succeed. Um, my longtime prediction that the the government system will die of embarrassment, you know, may come true. Uh, so we can hope for that. But in the meantime, you know, we do have the Chinese going up there. And look, my bottom line about this is, and I say the Chinese, you know what? It's it's G, it's G and his people. It's you know, it's the the Communist Party uh, because. You know, the Chinese people are, to me, different, you know, just as Russia is not Putin, Putin is not Russia. Um, and, and I know you're, you are a globalist yourself uh, in the broader sense. Um, and we want everybody to be able to go. And, and I really do hope that there is the development of a cooperative approach, you know, uh, like one of our favorite uh, TV and movie series, the Serenity Firefly. Remember the... Uh, I love to tell in there that the language, the two languages of space are English and Chinese. And uh, I still haven't figured out why they use Chinese for curse words in English, but otherwise. But anyway, that's a whole separate thing. But there is a way for us to work together. And as we get out there, um, there's a lot of cool stuff to be done, right? Um, so give us like two or three minutes on your favorite topic, energy from space. Set us up. Talk about that. We'll take a break. We'll come back in hit it again, and then move towards some of the more important questions I have for you. Space solar power, go. All right. So imagine that there was an energy source that was appropriate for the kind of civilization we live in, meaning that it is large enough that it can supply cities and industry, that it can supply those cities and industry day or night, it doesn't stop when the wind stops blowing. It doesn't, you know, stop when the when the sun gets low on the horizon. And imagine that it's twenty four, you know, twenty four hours. And imagine it's hundred percent renewable. And now imagine that that could scale to all global demand several times over. And you know, imagine that it took up less uh, land area than its competitors. And uh, and doesn't require cooling water and might even be able to be built, you know, at home by your own industry supplying, you know, let's say the same amount of jobs that the, uh, that the automotive industry uh, creates. Wouldn't that be worth thinking about and putting in the mix? So space solar power is the idea that if you try to capture the, the energy of the sun out in space above the earth's shadow, where you basically are just getting flooded in sunlight all the time, you're going to collect, you know, like 10 to 12 times as much energy as if you put that same solar panel on the ground where you've got to worry about day and night cycles. You're only getting, you know, good energy a little, little over a quarter of the time. And then you've got to worry about sunlight. You've got to worry about clouds. And you've got to worry about winter. And you've got to have backup generators, right? So it's a way to out-innovate the storage and transmission problems. So... Once you take that up into space, you've still got to get it down. And so 
you know, the critics will always point and go, oh, my gosh, you know, a, you know, coal plant on Earth is like 30 percent efficient. But a solar power satellite, you know, end to end is only like nine or 10 percent efficient. Yeah, it's 10 percent of free. And, you know, so you lose about half you know, you've got to convert it just like you got to convert on, on the ground, you know, the sunlight into electricity. And you've got to convert that, that electricity into radio waves to send it down to the earth, which we know how to do. And then, you know, you've got to reconvert it uh, on the back end. But the real beauty is that reconversion on the back end is like 85% efficiency, which means that instead of having like 70 plus percent waste heat as you would in a fossil fuel you've got 15% waste heat going into your biosphere. And that has stunning implications. So if you were to build these large multi-kilometer scale solar farms in space and connect them to these, you know, phased array antennas, you know, picture like a, like, you know, their phased array antenna on a modern, you know, airplane, just like a kilometer across, um, you know, you now can uh, beam power to all kinds of cities all over the world, including to those uh, like you have in Europe or in Canada or in the Northeast United States that get very little sunlight. And you could, in theory, build these entirely from lunar resources. And you could, you know, scale this to all global demand six times over just using the spare room you've got in the geostationary belt. And it turns out that these things are phenomenal in how fast they pay back in their energy payback time. So compared to, you know, a solar panel, you know, on Earth that might take several years to pay back, you you can measure your payback, you know, in days for a solar power satellite, even including all the energy that rockets spend. And that's also true, you know, even if you're using like, you know, and these would require thousands of, uh, of Starship launches to build a system big enough uh, for this to, to service, you know, all of Earth or a significant part of Earth. But even with, you know, all the greenhouse gases, you know, that you used in that process of making the satellite and launching it, your carbon payback on the carbon invested still blows away anything else. So as a potential, like if you really care about climate change, not if you're not like an anti-growth person, but you actually care about climate change and you're actually looking for an energy technology that could fix climate change, space solar power should absolutely be on your radar. And it so happens it's on the Chinese radar and the UK and Saudi Arabia and Canada and ESA and Japan and Korea, but not in the United States. Uh, of course not. And on that uplifting note, um, we're going to take a little break. Spacers, you are listening to IROC Space Radio, Colonel Pete Garretson, author of Scramble for the Skies. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and uh, we're a part of the iHeartRadio network. We'll be right back with our closing segment. Hey there, Spacers, you're listening to IROC Space Radio. This show is the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. We're all brought to you as a part of the iHeartRadio network, and our guest today is Colonel Pete Gerritsen. So, Pete, you were just hitting it hard on space solar power. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of skeptics out there. Um, you know, the whole supply chain thing as to how much pollution is created as you're building my nifty solar panel. You know, I'm, uh, I'm so excited, by the way. I have to show you this. Yeah. I got a uh, battery uh, backpack here, you know, spare one. But look at this, solar, solar. Um, I'm a big fan. And um, yet there is this idea. And I, I think what you're saying there is this a conflation between uh, we need to save the planet and then sort of a feel-good approach. This is sort of like uh, when our friends over in Germany uh, decided that um, – we're just going to get rid of all the nuclear plants because, you know, nuclear is bad because, you know, I, I saw Chernobyl or something. And um, um, as we know, um, carbon, the carbon industry is far worse, far, far worse than the nuclear industry in terms of deaths and all of that. It's not as scary. It doesn't make as good a movie as, you know, Three Mile Island movie and, you know, all these types of things. Um, 
And I think the challenge that you slash we have when we talk about space solar power um, is that the uh, apparent immediacy of the environmental impact versus the payoff is just confusing to people. They don't get it. And you were making the point right at the end that even if you were using a bunch of rocket launches, rocket ship launches using Starship or um, New Glenn or whatever it is to carry these payloads up, um, at the end of the day, the carbon industry is far, far worse in its polluting. Um, and uh, you also made the point that there are several other countries that seem to have figured it out and are going for it. Um, so it is happening. It's just not happening here yet. What would you like to see happen so that it does happen here in the United States? And kudos to those countries that are obviously coming to our conferences and watching our stuff all these years. Um, apparently our, our people were too busy or something. I don't know. But uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Tell us. What you know, what I'd like to see happen is that, you know, either, you know, a, a thought leader in Congress, you know, creates some legislation and a budget to get it to get it started and to tag somebody with doing it because mm -hmm. we have this bizarre uh, uh, situation where in a, in a flat budget, nobody's empire building. So, you know, the DOE says, Hey, this is a space project, you know, don't care about the energy part. Uh, NASA, you should be all over this. And NASA says, uh, you know, this is an energy project, you know, the space is incidental, you know, energy, you should be all over this, you know, so neither one's advocating to do, you know, anything about it. Um, and you know, you're, you're right. You know, there's a lot of critics and, and haters out there that, you know, uh, make it more difficult to get to ground truth and actually try the technology. Um, and that's a shame because, you know, here we have had two, uh, two presidents that said they were all about the environment, right? We had Obama. And of course, we know that space solar power was part of what Charles Miller and team, you know, took to him, you know, saying, hey, what about space solar power? And for whatever reason, never was taken up. And then, you know, here again, you know, we've got a White House that says climate change is, you know, number one for everything, foreign policy, domestic jobs, everything. And, you know, we have a vice president that says very similar things on the National Space Council. So I would really hope that, that you know, somebody with influence could get to the president and vice president and say, look at how crazy this is that Europe and China and the UK and Japan, our closest allies and adversaries, are all over this global leadership thing. And we who espouse this are not doing anything. And then look at how close this is to what we want to be doing in terms of in-situ resource utilization on the moon and all these past NASA studies detailing exactly how we might do that. Um, and look at what you've said about jobs for the future and look about what you're saying about, you know, climate and look about what you just said about in-situ, uh, about uh, in-space assembly and manufacturing. This is the killer case of in space, uh, you know, assembly and manufacturing, and however that goes through the users advisory group, or you know, somebody you know who's got the chops on the National Space Council, you know, we need to get to a policy document that lays out this is now a national goal, and here's who's going to do what about it. And you know, I mean, of course, I would love to see an Apollo level project to get after this, but truthfully, you wouldn't need that. Um, and in particular, you probably don't need that because there are at least three startups in the United States that I think have got credible, uh, you know, technical paths to move forward. And if the government was going to, to remove a little bit of the risk that they face, they face regulatory risk, they face market risk, and of course, they face technology risk. And, you know, we could do like we did in the COTS program where each of them individually, instead of having a NASA project you know, or a DOE project to try to design some new solar power satellite. We could just be like we were doing with commercial fusion, handing out money to startups to say, hey, let's get your design to the next level. You know, now let's see, can you meet some investment level? You know, let's subsidize a launch to see if your stuff can actually work in space. Um, and, you know, on the back end, you know, hey, we'll actually, you know, we'll be the first buyer of that. You know, I'll buy that the you know, give me some power at one of my, you know, mm -hmm. one of my military bases or to the Tennessee Valley Authority or something like that. So 
you know, we could probably, with a COTS-like program, drive forward. Now, I would also like to see the government do other stuff because, you know, the the three ideas that these companies, you know, and, and here I was talking specifically about uh, solar space technologies with John Mankins and John Bucknell's Virtus Solis and Solarin, and I think there's some others that are probably in stealth mode. Um, but, uh, you know, they're not going to be spending their time on the farther reaching things. And like, if you're really going to expand this at scale, you probably want to be using lunar resources to do it. And we haven't updated, nobody's bothered to pay for studies to update the lunar designs from the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, we know a lot more about the regolith and, and frankly, you know, if, if the Chinese vision is to industrialize the moon to build solar power satellites, what the heck is our Artemis base camp going to be doing? You know, it, 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 it mm -hmm. brings it all together. If you can mine, process regolith, build basic components, and you've got a system to launch at scale, you know, whether or not you end up saying space solar power satellites are economic or not, you have broken the space logistics paradigm for everything. You've broken yourself open. So this, it's, you know, as the Europeans say, it's a no regret strategy because for them, if they can work towards a prototype of building a solar power satellite, even if it doesn't turn out to be economic, they are now putting their companies in the leadership position for in-space assembly and manufacturing. Hmm. And they're driving towards, you know, having, you know, a high, a high ability to access, you know, orbit with a use case that requires reusability. And why this is so difficult to get that, you know, just trying to get the space solar power gets you everything else you need to be a space power to open the frontier, you know, just seems surprisingly hard for some people to get to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you've been pushing this a long, long time. I, uh, I've gone back and forth on it over the years and, um, um, by the way, let, let's talk about it because I know you're sort of leaning the other way these days towards fusion. Well, I'm, I'm I want both. to say, like, in my, in, but go ahead. In my world, right? Um, these are not at cross purposes, right? I am pro fission, I am pro fusion, and I am pro space solar power, which, right. by the way, is just gravitational confinement fusion. Um, but uh, when you think about scalability on Earth, the thing that is attractive about space solar power as compared to really every other option, right? Mm -hmm. Every other really large energy contributor, right, is either going to require an enormous amount of land space, like ground solar, or you have to boil water. Mm. Or, you know, you have to run it through some type of, of, you know, Carnot engine, and that requires cooling water. And if you really want to scale global energy demand, not just to what we've got today to replace, but for all everybody else coming up, they're just you know, why do you want to dump that much waste heat into your rivers uh, or even your oceans if you don't have to? I mean, the, the difference between 70% waste heat and 15% waste heat, you know, is a big difference. Right. And frankly, you know, the the ability, you know, what are you optimizing for, you know, toward, right? If you're optimizing toward the least cost thing today, you know, which is what we usually optimize toward, you know, you might pick another option, mm -hmm. but then you're going to have to spend again if you want the space revolution separately. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas a, 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 a assist, if you're biased towards, you know, humanity having a long-term, affordable, sustainable, you know, scalable presence, you know, you're moving toward Dyson spheres eventually. Right. I mean, that, that's the path, right? You're going to use the big fusion reactor in the center. So, you know, starting down that, that path, you know, you want to. Now, that doesn't say don't go for space vision uh, or space fusion propulsion. Like, those are key investments. You know, if I were on a lunar base, even if I've got, you know, some nice, uh, you know, solar tower, I would feel much better if there were a little nuke, you know, backing me up for those cold, cold you know, lunar nights. But, you know, Space solar power has got this truly, you know, it's very low real estate. Um, and, you know, you can, you know, you can essentially pay for 
your movement out into space, the entire infrastructure to build your O'Neill cylinder, you know, to build, you know, your in-space fusion propulsion rocket, you know, that's a lot easier if you're moving millions of metric tons to build solar power satellites, you know, every year. Right, right. And yes. <laughs> no, I, I want to see both. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I haven't heard it, but I was quoted probably in a BBC uh, interview about the two energy sources and uh, I don't know which quotes they took. We took for quite a, took a quite a long uh, interview, but I, uh, I do believe in both. Um, and, um, you know, I, I want to see space solar because I, you know, it gets you that second, that second thing, which is an industrial infrastructure in space early. Um, I also frankly think that fusion is going to take a while. And I think it's, there's a bit of overblow, you know, how do we get funding? Let's make an announcement that we had a breakthrough and then we'll get more funding, which is cool. Um, the solar space solar will do the same thing, you know? Um, but we do, we do need both of them. The, the one thing we have to move away from is the carbon economy. And uh, both of these represent a potential future. Speaking of the future, I want to, I'm going to jump now and we're going to start on our glide path. And speaking of which, um, no, I'm, I really have to get in these important questions, even though we're having so much fun. I'm going to have to have you back. We're going to cover the 250 other topics we didn't get to. Um, but so here's my question to you. You're cruising across the lunar surface, a few thousand meters up, moving really fast. What are you listening to? Classic rock and roll. Classic rock and roll. Any particular tune, band? I'd probably start you know, with Van Halen. One, man. All right. All right. Van Halen. Okay. I like it. I like it. And um, who was your biggest literary influence? Ooh, for space? Mm-hmm. <laughs> stumped you. That's, uh, that's, yeah, you, you stumped me because, you know, I, I was, of course, reading all the classic, you know, 19... 19- 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. um, sci-fi, you know, when uh, when it was assumed that people were going to be out there and they all had a positive spin to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to say because, you know, lately I've been so focused on modern, uh, you know, pretty recent sci-fi. And in fact, you know, what I will say is like, I'm loving Dan Suarez's latest book, right. Critical Mass. Right, right. You should absolutely have him on because that's that's the future we're talking about right finally finally somebody optimistic writing about near-term stuff that could happen you know in a pro-commercial way uh that it's got no miracles right not even one you know like i love the expanse but you know they've they've got their epstein drive that that's their one miracle right um cool so dan suarez we're just gonna say He's your favorite guy now. And you started with the classics. Um, favorite space movie or TV show? Series? Whatever. Yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, Apple TVs for all mankind. <laughs> That's a fun one. Um, and then the expanse right behind that. Okay. I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, it was great to see them actually projecting from the past. And yet what they're incorporating in terms of what the big thing is, is the uh, Russians and the Americans trying to get the water from the poles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which let, me, is, let me take that back. Okay. Take it back. No, no. I mean, if I'm really going for all time, it's Star Trek, the original series. Okay. I, I don't think you can get more foundational or more influence. I mean, when you really think about what probably influenced me, you know, it, it would be the original Star Trek. Perfect. Good. Good. Both of them good. One modern, one original. Um, although I'm loving all the new Star Treks, and so I'm just swimming around in all of them. So, well, look, man, I got to tell you, you've had uh, this has been fun, and I think some people uh, maybe got an education, especially we're going to space solar power. Um, you know, we are about an inclusive future, an exciting future for everybody, uh, and we don't come on. I'm down on the side of any party or political point of view, et cetera. And uh, with that in mind, just for like, it was a two minute wrap up here on what would you tell some young person listening to this show who decides they want to get involved? What would you tell them? All right. First thing I would tell them is don't believe the nonsense that you have to have a less bright future, you know, or that the future needs to be terrible. 
there is such opportunity waiting for you and waiting for you out there. And in terms of wanting to get involved, there are tons of places to get involved, right? If you want to do national service, Space Force is, you know, ground level. It's a startup. It's something brand new, um, real place to make your mark. You know, if you're wanting to do public service, NASA still needs tons of talent. There are plenty of hard problems out there. You know, if you've got an entrepreneurial bend, you know, there are so many fantastic companies out there with bigger visions for the most part, even than things you've heard here. And that's a great place to, to figure it out. And if you just want to think about it, you know, uh, part-time, phenomenal organizations, you know, like Space Frontier Foundation, like Earthlight, like National Space Society, that are absolutely open to anybody who shares the dream, no matter what their background is, where they're from, these organizations want you because you share the vision. And lastly, terrific books, you know, places that you can get into and start. Very, very, you know, happy that, you know, Rick has plugged mine. Um, you know, but you should read Jerry O'Neill's The High Frontier. I, I think that's absolutely phenomenal to start off. Uh, I think Bob Zubrin's The Case for Space is terrific. I think Dennis Wingo's Moonrush, uh, again, phenomenal. So there are lots of places to start, and we want you. If you want to be part of this movement, we want you. Perfect. Very cool. I agree. And if you really want to get into it, Scramble for the Skies by Colonel Pete Garrison and Amrata Goswami. Thank you, Pete. It's been fun. We're going to have you back. We're going to uh, go in uh, some more directed directions, shall we say. This has been a great wandering around, and uh, you've been a great guest. Very educational. All right, spacers, um, you've been listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the, well, the iHeartRadio Network. And my name is Rick Tomlinson. This is the Space Revolution, and we are out the airlock. You've been listening to the Space Revolution podcast with Rick Tomlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.